I knew that the hours could be long. I knew the hours could be tough on family life, but I really couldn't get past the fact that I, I, I love people. I love being around people. I love making people happy. And in the restaurant, I was able to do all those things. I think I met the most interesting man alive, and his name is Narsi David. Hi friends, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast for episode 142. My name is Odessa, and I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with Mr. Narsi David. Born in South Bend, Indiana in the USA in 1936, he lived in the Midwest before he and his family made their way to California in the Central Valley. Having grown up helping his mother with cooking and later through different jobs, one thing was always at the center of what he did and did well, and that was food. He has had a long and successful career in the food and wine industry, working in and managing other restaurants before starting his own business. Thanks to the famous rock impresario, Bill Graham, Narsi catered for some of the most famous rock and roll bands and later opened up the renowned Narsi's Restaurant. The wine list at Narsi's was described as one of the 10 finest in the world by the New York Times. In our conversation, Narsi talks about his journey through food and wine, which has taken on many exciting turns. He has had a long stint as a radio personality and continues to make regular appearances on radio as food and wine editor of KCBS Radio in San Francisco. He is also a published author and has frequently made TV guest appearances. What I find most impressive about Narsi, though, is despite his personal success, he has always made time to be involved and give back to the community. Having served in multiple organizations throughout his life, including Assyrian Aid Society, his many contributions include the prestigious Narsay's Taste of the Mediterranean event, which has raised millions for Assyrian humanitarian aid. To me, it's a reminder that no matter how successful we become in our lives, it is important to remain connected and give back to your community. I thoroughly enjoy learning more about him, and I know you will too. Listen in as we discuss his upbringing, his career in food and wine, and his love and connection to his Assyrian heritage. But first, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Ashana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Yoshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a little bit more by checking out their website, the Oshana, that is O-U-S-H-A-N-A, partners.com. Now, without further ado, here is Narsi David. Thank you so much, Narsi, for being a guest on the Assyrian podcast, we are very, very lucky to have you on. Your Wikipedia page says that you are 84 years old. Is that true? 
<laughs> it sure is. <laughs> and in a couple of months, I'll be 85. All right. So you were born in 1936? Right. Something that I had noticed when I was reading about you was that there aren't many elderly people I know who have Assyrian names, interestingly enough. Why did your parents decide to name you Narsi? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a good question. My father is from uh, Marbishu in southeast Turkey, up in the hills. And my mother was born in Ada in Urmi. So we used to call my father's people Shapadnai and my mother's people Urmishnai. And as you know, it was kind of unusual for having a marriage that brought the two of those together. But that's the way their marriage did come together in Chicago. And my father was, was quite dedicated to the church. As I was a young kid, we grew up in Chicago until I was 10 years old. And when I was like seven or eight, he would take me to church with him every Sunday, even though we would normally go to a local church on Sundays that had a Sunday school. But on uh, any of the holy days or special days, feast days and such, he would always take me with him. I was the oldest and he insisted we speak Assyrian at home. He said, there's no way he could teach us English as well as we're going to learn it on the outside. But... We need to speak Assyrian at home to preserve that. And there was this real commitment to, to maintaining the history. And I'll tell you in a minute about his history. But so I was given the name uh, Narsi Michael David. My father's name was Michael. So I was Narsi Michael David. And my. And when you said church, is this a church of the East? Yes, Church of the East, thank you. And my next brother is Chinu Michael David. We all have Michael for our middle name. That was our father's name. And my youngest brother is James Michael David. In fact, his name was supposed to be Oger. And somewhere along the way, I'm frankly a little confused. I think it was the um, baptismal record called him Oger. And then by the time they filed the uh, birth certificate, it became James Michael David. And Chinu is my father's father's name. So he's known as Ken. And they used, the kids used to jokingly call him Kano uh, when they saw his whole name spelled out. But he's a, he's a tough guy. And he made it clear that his name was Ken. <laughs> uh, and I'm Jim. But I've always been Narsi. Friends call me Nars. And you mentioned that your parents were born in Southeast Turkey and Iran, and then they eventually made their way to the United States. What brought them to the U.S.? Well, when the, the fighting got really crazy, my mother's village had to leave. My father had already come earlier. Do you uh, remember what year? Yeah, my dad came in 1912. Wow. Uh, in fact, let me tell you a little bit about his history. His uncle, his mamuna, his father's brother, Rahana, Rahana was uh, actually dedicated to the church in Zira. You know the word in Zira? It's an Assyrian word uh, for somebody that's dedicated to the church. From the time of his conception, his mother stopped eating meat, and he never ate tasted meat in his entire life. He had seafood, and technically that's limited to flesh fish and no shellfish. And one day he sort of quietly get this, admitted to me that he had had shrimp once, which was kind of <laughs> cute. Um, but uh, we were, there was always this close religiosity. 
And he never went beyond the position of, of deacon, Shamasha. He was known throughout the country of Assyrians as Shamashadahana. And in Chicago, he built the first church of the East. He had come early and started a uh, Persian rug business and did very, very well, made good money, and decided that it would serve his people the best and his family the best if he did not elevate him in the church, but rather stay with the business because it was making good money. I'll never forget reading a letter that he showed me once where he could save Assyrian lives for $1 a piece in cash. And there were just horrible things that were still going on in the Middle East. And he was sending money back. He built the first Assyrian church of the East in Chicago. He built the first Assyrian church of the East in Gary, Indiana. Wow. So we were, we were very much endowed with wanting to be Assyrians. That's quite impressive. And so your dad came in 1912. When did your mother right. come? Then, uh, then she was uh, in Urmi and in, um, when the craziness started at the beginning of the war, suddenly the, the Kurds and the Turks together got rid of the Assyrian problem and drove the Assyrians out of the villages. Her husband, as in your mother's father, had already come to the United States and was working as a janitor to raise enough money to bring the rest of the family. But when, when the fighting started, she loaded an ox-drawn cart and her six children, one of them, she had seven children, one had been lost at sea on the Sea of Urmi uh, with the fighting. And she took the remaining six kids, loaded them on the cart, and they, they were able to to draw milk from the ox and en route to North Iraq, where civil encampments were set up for the Assyrians. She would trade that milk for other food and medical supplies with the British army that she met along the way. And, and she was a real trooper, that woman, and got the family into uh, Iraq and got them settled in. And as soon as my grandfather had raised enough money for their passage, which took it was like two or three years later. So she didn't get to the United States until until 1918. And yeah, that's right, because she was born in 05. So she was 13 when she arrived, and she was the youngest of the seven children. So that gets us to Chicago. And according to your Wikipedia, you were born in Indiana. Is that true? Uh, South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. For the first two years, we lived in South Bend. And my father had a cousin, Brat Mamunu, uh, named Esiet David, married to a man named Enter. And um, my dad was, was a little bit taller and a lighter complexion than many of the Assyrians. And he spoke English very well, had a very handsome presentation, personality. And he would go around to, let's say, roughly a 100-mile radius of Chicago, the rug store was in Chicago, and they would announce at these fancy furniture stores that the, the Middle East rug expert, Mike David, is coming uh, to visit and to answer all your questions, and we have a sale on these rugs, et cetera, et cetera. And he would make the rounds 
And we always joked about the fact that NTS yet had given him a key to the house because sometimes he'd get there late at night on a, on a train and sleep in the guest bedroom. And he would always leave a penny on the pillow to show that he'd been there because he was off so quick the next morning to go off to the next town. And so we had a close relationship with that family as well. Occasionally we'd spend summer vacations in uh, South Bend visiting her or in Flint, Michigan, visiting my mother's sister who lived there. But Were there other Assyrians in Indiana? Yeah, there was a small settlement in and around South Bend, a somewhat larger settlement in Gary. In fact, my father's uh, best man at his wedding was named Benjamin, and he had a son, Adam Benjamin, who was the first Assyrian to ever been elected to Congress of the United States. So that goes back long before Anna Ishu, who was the second member of Congress to be an Assyrian. Wow. So ben- Benjamin, what was the last name? Adam Benjamin. Adam Benjamin ben- was the last name. Adam Benjamin. Wow. What brought Assyrians to Indiana? Well, it was where they, they, came, they went to where the jobs were. They all landed in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever seen an old railroad map of America, Chicago is like the hub, and these spokes go off in every direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's that hub is where manufacturing was. The stockyards were there. Within a 100-mile radius, uh, you had all of the, the factories in Flint, Michigan, and Detroit. You know, there's a huge Chaldean Assyrian community in Detroit. Mm-hmm. But it all started back in those days where people went for the jobs. In South Bend, there were automobile manufacturing. I mentioned the stockyards in Chicago. It was was just the center of so much activity. And it's clear that as soon as they had found enough money to buy a piece of dirt, the Assyrians coming from an area where it was warm practically year round, they wanted to get into a climate that was comfortable for them. And Turlock happened to be the perfect target. And now when people ask me, well, how did they settle on Turlock? Let me give you my version of why they settled in Turlock. And um, I was in Iran in 1974. I went to find my mother's birthplace. I went to Ada and actually met a family who remembered my mother's family. It was a little bit remote, but, but at least it was a bit of a connection. Two years later, I was in the south of uh, Spain in Granada. And it was this strange thing because all the time I was in Granada, I kept thinking of Turlock and Ada, Turlock and Ada. My wife could tell you that, you know, those were the days before we had a computer in our our hip pocket in the form of a phone. I got home from that trip and I wanted to see an atlas before I did anything else. And I looked up Turlock, Granada, and Ada, and found that they were within 17 miles of the same line of latitude. Mm. So now when people ask me, how did the Assyrians get in Turlock? I know that they all headed for California because that was obviously going to be the most likely place. And in Turlock, some guy got off the train and said, gee, you know, this feels kind of good. Let's, let's, let's have a cup of coffee and check it out. And in a couple of days, he had found a piece of land and bought it. And he sends a telegram to his brother in Detroit and his cousin in Flint and his uncle in Chicago. And the migration started. It was in the late 20s. I think 29, as I recall, is about the earliest the Assyrians 
uh, got to Turlock. Yeah, Dr. Ariane Shaya has a book about the Assyrians of California, and it's more or less that story. It's and so we were we were an agricultural people, and so that that right. soil was just as comparable to that of uh, where they were in Iran, and so they they planted their roots there. But interestingly enough, before they settled in California, a lot of those people, one of the one, some of the first ones who are descendants of the Adams family. Uh, were actually in in Canada. They had come to Canada originally. I believe it's Saskatchewan, which is just it's a very cold place. Nothing like mm. nothing like the temperature um, or soil like in Iran. And so in, they continued to make their way down to California, and that ended up proving to be something that was comparable. Now, you your family and you eventually ended up moving to California. What brought the move? Well. In 1946, we came to California. My father had been diagnosed with leukemia, which is a cancer of the blood. And to this day, I don't know if the doctors were naive enough to think warm weather would help him in his life or whether they were such good psychologists that they said, let this man go to where he would really like to be with his people. And he, uh, in fact, died in 1951. So he lived five years in Turlock. I'm the oldest of three, and by that point, I was 15 years old, and we had moved to uh, a little spot just outside the city limits of Turlock. It was almost an acre of land. We had chickens and rabbits. We had an enormous vegetable garden. There were seven walnut trees, an olive tree. My dad planted a row of grapevines. I think there were more for the grape leaves for Dolma than there were for the <laughs> grapes themselves. And there were no daughters in the family, so the boys had to chip in with the work in the kitchen. She would can a hundred quarts of tomatoes every year. Tomatoes, I've often said that the square root of my mother's cooking is tomatoes, onions, and basil. <laughs> and all of those came out of the garden. and. We would sit around the table, my two brothers and myself in the kitchen, and race to see who could pit the peaches the fastest or who could peel the tomatoes the fastest. It it became a fun thing for the family. So all three of us grew up not only knowing how to cook, but but enjoying cooking. It was just it was part of part of what it was all about. And life in Turlock was quite comfortable. Once my dad died, it things changed pretty substantially. I was going to ask, he was there for five years and then here you are, the eldest son. I'm assuming, did you take on a lot of the responsibility? Right, right. I I became the one that butchered the chickens and the rabbits. My mother made cheese. When you talk about Gyupta Tumurta, Mm -hmm. this was really Gyupta Tumurta. The cheese she made was a fairly simple, plain white cheese, but she would then grind it through a little meat grinder, add salt, and some uh, fennel seed, Mayana seed, and pack it into quart jars and bury it in the ground. And in Turlock, you could get away with this. Anywhere else, you'd probably get poisoned by uh, chemicals or something, but the soil is so soft and friable that the, the jar had just a piece of cotton fabric over the top that was tied on with a string. And then it's buried upside down because if there were a heavy rainstorm or or you irrigated, if it were right side up, obviously it could be contaminated. But when it's upside down 
and the soil is so friable that it never backs up, moisture drains out. And after a year, you dig it up and it's dry and crumbly and has that wonderful smell of aged cheese. I mean, it, they were accomplishing what's done in caves, but there were no caves around. So they, they created their own version of that. Incredible. And at that time, what did the responsibilities look like within the household? Was your mom, did your mom as a result have to go out and work? Were you as the sons going out working? All of the above. In Turlock, about the only job she could get was working in a cannery mm -hmm. during the summer. And that was like 26 weeks. And then 26 weeks, she drew unemployment compensation, which was something like $22 a week or something like that. So I took a job working after school at the purity market in downtown Turlock in the butcher shop. I would clean the meat slicer. Well, first I would slice luncheon meats and cheeses to fill the case for the next day. And then I would break down and wash the bandsaw and the meat slicer and the grinder and all of that stuff. And in my last year, well, first my last year of high school, I managed to get two scholarships to the University of California to Berkeley. And when I got to, oh, well, then the summer that I graduated, I went to the vice principal at the high school because I was really tired of doing field work. We harvested more melons than, and there was this wonderful deacon, Shamasha in the church, Jewish uh, Galeta, that uh, had a sizable ranch. He grew uh, watermelons mainly in the summertime. He raised chickens. In fact, I spent a few weeks one summer vaccinating baby chicks, uh, <laughs> which was a crazy deal. What, what is the process to vaccinate baby chicks? Well, you just you pick up this tiny thing that's no bigger than a couple of eggs and you uh -huh. poke the needle in it. All right. And uh, his wife was a great cook, but you can bet we ate chicken every day for lunch, <laughs> one, one form or another. And he taught me how to drive that tractor. So I couldn't turn it at the ends. He had the trailer behind it and we would windrow the uh, melons, a team of three or four or five, depending on the width of the lane, would march across the field in unison and we'd toss the melons from one to the other to get them to the row where the tractor could come through. And then I would drive the tractor from one end to the other while he was off doing something else. And he would come and turn it around and into the next lane and I'd drive it back the other way. So that summer when I graduated, I went to the high school vice principal and said, there's surely got to be something else that I could do. I spent one summer working in a cannery, which was really the, the grungiest job I've ever had in my life. But he said, do you like to cook? And I said, yeah, actually I do. He said, well, this drive-in restaurant called Hendy's Drive-In is looking for a cook's helper. So I went and got a job as a cook's helper. So in September, I came to Berkeley to go to Cal. I signed up to live in a student co-op. And I went to this huge drive-in at the corner of Telegraph and MacArthur. It was a round drive-in like they have in that movie, American Graffiti, uh, where the car hops are on skates rolling around and I walked into the uh, the kitchen and told the chef I was looking for a job as a fry cook and he looked at me I was I had just turned 17 that summer and he was trying to make up his mind whether to kick me out or laugh at me but I guess he figured 
if I was serious enough to stand there and look them in the eye and tell them I wanted a job. And I'm looking in the kitchen and the, the cooks are all these war veterans that have a package of Lucky Strikes rolled up in their T-shirt sleeve, yeah. you know? <laughs> and I guess he figured if this kid is bold enough to ask for a job, maybe he'll work in the fountain. So he said, listen, Sonny, you ever pop sodas down there in Turlock? And I said, oh yeah, I used to come in on my days off. Well, that was a bit of an exaggeration. But long story to make it short, I got a job as a soda jerk that summer. So now I've had some experience in a restaurant and I quickly became the kitchen manager at the co-op house. And the next year I became the, the head of the um, nutrition food committee for all seven of the co-op houses. And is Hendy's Drive-In still open? Hendy's and Turlock, no. He had two of them. He had one in Turlock and one in Ceres. Yeah, they disappeared many years ago. The one in Oakland, High's Drive-In, has disappeared as well. It's, But it was interesting because it was a place that was determined to be the single busiest traffic intersection in America. Wow. First of all, California had more cars than anybody else to begin with because it's so spread out. But MacArthur Boulevard was the only way to get onto the Bay Bridge from the East Bay. And Telegraph Avenue was one of the main north-south arterials. And so right at that corner is where they put High's Drive-In to get that amount of traffic. And I met some interesting people working there as a, as a soda jerk. One guy operated this um, plant in the little town of Emeryville, which is wedged in between Berkeley and Oakland. Uh, there was a large uh, mill that melted down car bodies and made reinforcing rod. Well, when this group got together to build a Church of the East in San Francisco, they needed some rebar to build a concrete. And we, we actually bought a home out in the, uh, in the uh, Sunset District and converted the downstairs into a, a meeting center. And it required putting in a concrete slab. Well, this guy immediately volunteered to donate all the rebar we needed. And then he lined up a concrete contractor that bought steel from him and got him to donate the concrete as well for the church. And maybe I should sidetrack a little bit to keep my involvement in the church and the Assyrians going. Early on in Turlock, I had been an altar boy, Garuya, mm -hmm. in the Church of the East. And I used to actually read the segment from the Bible that was on assignment that Sunday in Assyrian. And then I became a hupadyakna, a subdeacon. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of those ordinations were by Marshuman. Then wow. Marshuman consecrated a man who took the name Martuma to be the, the um, designate for Malabar and India. And at that same consecration, when he consecrated Martuma, and Martuma turned around and ordained three deacons, Shamasha, and I was one of those. So, so you're a Shamasha uh, of the Church of the East. I'm a Shamasha of the Church oh of the East. Oh, my goodness. So I, I helped in, in getting the church built, and I was involved with the church. Uh, and this was the Marnarsay Church in San Francisco. Right. It wasn't called Marnarsay at that time, but that's what it is now. And uh, the patriarch gave a dispensation to one of the older Assyrian men, one who was from the old country, to read the um, the New Testament evangels. In a, he did the entire sermon in Assyrian one week, 
and I would do the sermon in English the next week. And I, I got some help at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. They made, they made me, they let me use their library so I could get material and, and write my, my talks. Could you paint a picture or can you describe for listeners who haven't attended that church what that church looks like? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a relatively small church. It's a relatively small church. The most memorable thing to me was when the, the second floor, which had been the bedrooms, all the walls were knocked down to create a large enough surface. And my mother's first cousin, a man named Luther Warda, was a plaster contractor. And he built this beautiful curved arch that was in the front out of plaster. And I can't tell you what a thrill it was as a kid watching them do this thing uh, because they nailed up a screening of some kind of, it wasn't chicken wire, it was a, a, a finer texture than chicken wire, but some kind of a coarse mesh wire. And he troweled on a layer of mud, as he called it, and it just sort of gave you a funny little outline that maybe that was going to be a curved thing. And then once that set up, he came back and a more refined trowel that had deeper grooves cut into it. And about the third or fourth layer of plaster that was put on, suddenly there was this beautiful, perfect arch. And by the time it was painted out, it was just like, like it was a piece of stone you would never know. So, yeah, I watched that that go up sort of from the scratch. Do you remember what year the church was built? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I would have been, well, the church would have been built in the 1950s. I would guess it was 51, 2, 3, somewhere in there. Somewhere in the 50s. Now, when you went to UC Berkeley, I mean, UC Berkeley is a very reputable university. That's an understatement. Yeah. And so, you know, you being the first in your family to be going to to college and at that, a university like UC Berkeley, what was that like for your family? What did that mean for your family? Unfortunately, since my dad had died and I had two younger brothers still in Turlock, uh, living with my mother on a you know very very limited income, I used to send her my check more often than not my paycheck. And two years after I got to Berkeley, my brother Ken moved up to Berkeley to be with me, and I couldn't live in a student co-op anymore because that was limited to people who were active students, and he didn't qualify. So we rented a little apartment together, and. About the time he got settled into a job and things were straightening out a little bit for him, the youngest brother came up to join us. Mm -hmm. So we moved into a house where all three of us could live. And as as you've probably picked up the drift here, I was drifting further and further away from from college. I would have originally graduated in 1957, but I took my last class in 1958 and I still didn't graduate. Mm. uh, It just... It just didn't didn't happen. My mother, by the way, some seven years after my dad died, did remarry, mm. and I am I'm grateful for her that she was was able to to live a more comfortable life. The man had been successful, having been in the trucking business with his brother. They they hauled produce and and various things, and then he son had started a similar thing, so. He was, he was very comfortable. 
he had some daughters living in San Jose. They would frequently go to San Jose to visit them or come up to Berkeley to visit the girls in San Jose or the boys in Berkeley. Wonderful. Uh, so was he, was he a Syrian by chance? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Definitely. Oh, okay. And so, so William when Hennu, William Hennu was his name. Okay. So when your brothers came and joined you in, in Berkeley, it wasn't necessarily that your, your mother was to be left alone in, in Turlock. She had company of her own. That, that fits in very smoothly there. What are your earliest memories of food? Of food? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, let's go back to Chicago when I would go with my mother and my grandmother to the end of the streetcar line to the forest preserve. And we would go out into the forest and harvest yerka. I mean, this was to make yerka, this wonderful Lenten dish that happens to be one of my favorite memories of food. And we would pick uh, wild leeks and wild garlic and the tendrils off of grapevines. There was one other vegetable, I can't remember what it's called in Assyrian or in English. And then my mother always bought leeks and onions from the store to um, add to that. And then it was cooked with rice. There was no animal product in it at all because it was a Lenten dish. Uh, that just instantly flashes. Then the harissa that we always had at Christmas time. And the, the craziest of all would have to be the rishakli that we had for New Year's Day. And some people still have a hard time dealing with rishakli. Uh, and, you know, if you think about it, rishakli, that means head and feet, risha and akli, rishakli. So it's, it's poor people's food. It's the innards food. It's the stuff that, that the people in the back of the house get. And by golly, it was fascinating to me that it's funny. There was, there was no prohibition against alcohol in our home, but, but we rarely used any. Living in Turlock, one of my mother's brothers uh, lived in San Francisco, and he would come down to visit occasionally and bring a bottle of brandy or a bottle of some beer or wine. And what they didn't drink together at dinners would be sitting on the shelf the next time he came back. But by golly, when we had the Rishakli, my mother would suddenly show up with a bottle of brandy and go around the table and offer a glass to each of the men. Uh, it's going to melt the fat, yeah. <laughs> is what she was saying. And it's probably true that in the presence of alcohol, you metabolize fat <laughs> more quickly. So that's, that's, those, those are the, the quickest memories. Of course, her dolma is beyond, beyond approach, I should say. Everybody has a familiar story with dolma. Well, my mother made it the way she made it. And the grape leaf dolma, she used, she used to say that as kids in, in Ada, they were proud of helping make the dolmas so that the dolmas were the smallest of anybody's and they always had at least one piece of meat in each one. Mm. So being small means you pick the really tender grape leaves not these tough things that you buy in a jar these days. And then when she made dolma kalama, the cabbage dolma, it was sweetened with a little bit of uh, brown sugar and always with tomatoes. And she unabashedly used pork 
when mm. she made the cabbage dolma. I don't know where that tradition got started, but it sure works well with that uh, sweet and sour flavor of the dolma. And then everybody's all-time favorite was the dolma chutta. And for the dolma chutta, she would scoop out zucchini squash and Japanese eggplant, and there would be t stuffed tomatoes and stuffed peppers. Not these big bell peppers, but the kind of peppers we grew in the garden, they were sort of visualized a large size jalapeno, but not the hot peppery one. I mean, these were in the in the shape of that, but they were more like more like a bell pepper in terms of flavor. But you had all these different vegetables stuffed and baked together. Her rice, you know, they used to joke about how you could never find two grains of rice stuck together. Well, believe me, with the amount of butter she put in that rice, <laughs> there was no way they were going to be stuck together. <laughs> That's wonderful. And so many great memories of uh, of Assyrian dishes. Harissa being my favorite, of course. Yeah, Harissa is like comfort food, soul food for oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Narsi, what would you say was your first real experience in the food industry? Well, the first real experience was that. As a drive-in? High's drive-in. Well, the Hendy's drive-in, uh, flipping hamburgers. But then... I became head of food services during the time that I was at the student co-op. And, and then I had uh, worked in a couple of other restaurants as a student uh, right near campus. And a job opened up in Berkeley. There was a little restaurant called The Potluck. And it had started down at the foot of University Avenue and was producing sort of bistro-style food. You had a, they brought a large tureen of soup to the table and then a large bowl of salad with three different dressings you could help yourself. The meal itself was a piece of meat, some um, uh, rice pilaf, and a vegetable. In those days, the vegetables were frozen, usually peas or string beans, and, and they had beer. And it was called a potluck because each day you literally took potluck. It was like a little tiny French bistro. And they moved to a new location, expanded, put in a full liquor license, built a complete kitchen. He, we got a partner that, that put some money in. And I hit it off really well with him, working as a relief bartender once or twice a week. And in 1959, he offered me a job as manager. And, you know, I, I, I love people. I love food. I love wine. I really like making people happy. And I was able to do all that while being in the restaurant business. Mm. Um, so it it was a it was a, a a tough period, and I had signed up for the Army Reserve, which meant I would have to serve six months of active duty and five and a half years in the reserve. And my call up came at about the same time he offered me the job to manage the potluck. And I had to leave for six months for active duty. When I came back from the active duty, it turned out that the guy he had hired had not worked out very well, and the job was still open. Oh wow! Well, that was at that favorite. time. I knew I I just I knew that the hours could be long. I knew the hours could be tough on family life, but I I really couldn't get over the good couldn't get past the fact that i 
I enjoy, I love people. I love being around people. I love making people happy. And in the restaurant, I was able to do all those things. Mm -hmm. So I accepted the job and I was manager for 11 years until 1970 when I left to start my own catering business. And gosh, we did some, some crazy catering jobs. I met Bill Graham, the rock and roll promoter in San Francisco. And I did all these massive uh, shows that he did at the Oakland Coliseum. They're called the Day on the Green. And I provided all the food backstage for the entertainers. I had, geez, I had young kids that would come to me begging to let them work. They would work for no money just to be around the people backstage. Well, I wasn't going to have anybody working for no money, but it was it was funny because by the time the music started to play, I jumped in my car and drove off. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't my kind of music. And gee, I went to Ontario, Southern California. We did some shows for him down there at the uh, Ontario Speedway. I once came across one of your interviews from uh, a California jam concert back in 1974. Oh my. Where you <laughs> and I guess... For listeners, I mean, the context of how many people were there was what about 400,000 headlines like Black Sabbath, Eagles, Earth, Wind and Fire. And I remember you were saying you, you didn't just feed regular festival food. Uh, well, we had the backstage, the backstage food. And first of all, each entertainer had a clause in the contract that enabled them to to require certain foods and beverages to be there. Mm -hmm. And we had a checklist for each one of the trailers that the entertainers had. And this guy wanted two-fifths of Jack Daniels Black Label. And this guy wanted a fifth of Dom Perignon Champagne. And the other guy wanted a bottle of Skippy Peanut Butter. I mean, it was whatever, whatever they felt like had to be in their, in their trailer when they came back there. And then for a while, Bill had this assistant <clears throat> who considered himself a a serious restaurateur and he would have me bring whole New York strips that we would we would roast on an outdoor grill and when the favored people came through he would order a a slice to be cut off at a thick slice or a thin slice or whatever and and you know did more exotic and more special stuff then uh one summer for it was the the last performance of the band it was called the last waltz and we did a Thanksgiving dinner for 3,000 people. And Bill Graham would not allow me to buy whole boneless turkey. He wanted the turkeys to be roasted on the bone. And by golly, we went into the basement of Winterland and knocked out a row of windows and put in some big fans to act as exhaust blowers. I uh, rented a large truck and we went down Mission Street in San Francisco, which used to have a lot of restaurant equipment stores, used equipment stores. And I bought all these ranges that we hooked up down there. A plumber came in and hooked it all up. And after the show, by the way, we put those stoves on the same truck, went back down the same street. And in one instance, we actually sold it back to the guy we had bought it from at a lower price than we paid for it, obviously. But by golly, we prepared the entire meal fresh on whole turkeys and it's just about time for a break when they're going to come out into the entrance 
areas where we had set up the buffet tables. And I turned to Bill and said, you know, it's just this funny feeling in your gut. What if somebody screwed up or did something wrong with the dressing and some people get sick? And he turned around and said, Narcy, remember, you're only as good as your last show. <laughs> Thankfully, nobody, nobody got sick. And then uh, <clears throat> a year or two later, he wanted, uh, he, he would do an all night concert on uh, New Year's Eve. And he wanted to serve breakfast at 6 a.m. on New Year's Day to 6,000 people. This was divided into two venues, the carousel ballroom and the, um, and the auditorium simultaneously. And he would not let me use pre-cracked eggs like they use in bakeries, for instance, to make scrambled eggs or something. We had to crack eggs by hand individually, and there were eggs and bacon and rolls and sweet rolls and fresh fruit of one sort or another. Oh, talking about fresh fruit, those very first things we did, the concerts at the Fillmore Auditorium, there were always bushels of apples, red apples and green apples at the door. And his idea was show the kids that they can have something healthful instead of always looking for a joint to uh, to chew on or smoke and they could get this at and it became his benchmark. The toughest thing for me was finding bushel baskets because by then most apples were being shipped in cardboard boxes. But the craziest thing I did with him was I got a call one morning driving on the freeway and heard on the radio that the women's powder puff derby had just started at the Oakland airport. These are women that were flying solo in single engine planes from Oakland to um, New York. And they were going to land in Elmira, New York. And I'm wondering, hmm, where's Elmira? Well, I got to the office and there was a message from Bill for an urgent call. Now I see, do you know any caterers in upstate New York? I said, where the hell is upstate New York? <laughs> so, the next morning I was on a plane to fly to Elmira, New York. And as I get off the plane and coming through the uh, the corridors of the airport, here come the women carrying their statues, the winners of the Powder Puff Derby that I had heard on the radio the morning before. It was just, it was kind of a strange coincidence. Anyway, I spent uh, a week there trying to find local caterers. And that for that event, there were over 600,000 people that showed up. So I had to have people that knew that they would not be able to leave at the end of the show, just because traffic would be so abhorrent. And I found a guy in Syracuse that had a refrigerated truck and uh, and could provide the food I needed for the show. I hired a local caterer to prepare 100 breakfast, lunch, dinner meals each day for the week prior to the show to take care of the staff that was building the stage and organizing everything. What had happened was that the producer for the show suddenly realized at the last minute that he had not done anything to prepare for backstage food. So he called on Bill Graham, who called on me. And day after that show, we were catering a show for Bill at the Ontario Speedway. And I was planning to just stay on the East Coast and visit friends in Connecticut, friends going back to Turlock days, my buddy from high school days and on. But he said, why don't you come back with me I've hired a, um, a Learjet to take us there. So it sounded like fun. At 3 o'clock in the morning, 
a helicopter picked us up backstage at uh, Watkins Glen, took us to the Elmira Airport, 30 miles away, where a Learjet took us across to the Ontario Airport in Southern California. And get this, a helicopter picks us up at the airport, takes us over the freeway to the Ontario Speedway. I mean, my goodness, a car would have been just as quick, maybe even quicker. And so when Bill Graham died in a helicopter crash, nobody around him was very surprised. He just loved to be in a helicopter. And he, his pilot was a guy that had the nickname um, Tiger. No, Tiger, yeah. Killer, killer. killer. <laughs> Thank you. That's my computer in the background <laughs> filling in the blanks for me. <laughs> my wife, Vini, really bails me out. Killer did not, he recommended against going up because there was quite a storm brewing. And by golly, the helicopter smashed into one of those huge power towers uh, near, in the Carquina Straits near Martina. Wow. And that was the end of Bill Graham. He was just 60 years old. Wow. Now I've got to tell you, just hearing about your experience in the catering industry alone, I mean, it, that sounds, it sounds thrilling, but also really stressful. Well, it was demanding. It was demanding and was on the go. And if you're neurotic enough to, to be able to do these things and, and they're not fearful of it, it, uh, it, it keeps things moving. So you eventually, I'm assuming you eventually transitioned from the catering industry to then owning your own restaurant. Oh, well, yeah, the, the, the catering was merely an introduction point until I could afford to build a restaurant because of my goal was to have a restaurant. And even after the restaurant was built, we did a lot of catering from the restaurant. Mm -hmm. And your restaurant opened up in 1970. Darcy's opened in 1972, and uh, we developed quite a reputation. The uh, New York Times said we had one of the 10 finest wine lists in the world. The Wine Spectator magazine started to do a review of restaurant wine lists. They uh, announced that they were going to have two awards, a grand award, and then for the, the real standouts, and then an award. And I got a call from the publisher, Marvin Schenken, said, Narcy, I just wanted to let you know that selected your list as one of the um, uh, grand award winners. And I said, gee, Marvin, that's wonderful. That's great news. Tell me how many are in that group. And he said, well, to be honest with you, we haven't settled yet on whether to cut it off at three or 13. So that's the same as telling me that I was in the top three, right? Mm. And the restaurant continued in business for five more years after that. And we got each year, we got a renewal of the same recognition. Now tell me about the restaurant. What kind of food did you serve? What were some of your favorite dishes or most memorable dishes that you would serve? Well, there were only two dishes that lasted on the menu from the day we opened until the day we closed. And the first one was also the biggest selling item on the menu. And it was my Assyrian rack of lamb. Really? And we used American lamb from the Superior Lamb Company here in California. And I want to tell you, this this rack of lamb was a real showplace piece because we, we not only removed that extra flap of meat and fat and gristle on the outside, so it was just the, the actual ribeye on the bone, 
but we trimmed away the bones so that you could either cut it with a knife and fork or just pick up the bone and and chew it off without any of those little bits of bone still attached. And we also had a loin of lamb in which we trimmed the loin in much the same way. We roasted the whole loin and the loin would serve two people. And it was served only for two people and carved at table side, which was quite a dramatic presentation because a large silver tray came to the table. Uh, the maitre d' would cut the meat lengthwise so it had strips shaped sort of like slices of bacon cut across the entire length of the loin. And there was a, a wonderfully rich sauce with it, a pilaf. Our pilafs were different practically every day, always based on white rice. This was the days before brown rice became the standard. And we would have a little bit of rye berries or wheat berries or, or steel cut oats, something to give a little textural difference and physical appearance. Vegetables were always fresh. So for these side ta table side presentations, there were at least three separate vegetables. Most commonly, this time of year, it would be an artichoke heart carved and filled with a squash puree. And then there would be string beans, most likely, and the rice pilaf. And all of this is dished up at tables, carved and dished up at table side. We also had a whole duck that was uh, roasted on the bone, carved and served at the table side. The menu started out as a five course meal. We had first a choice of either a cream soup or a clear broth soup, followed by an appetizer. It could be either hot or cold and it changed daily. Things like when we sold all of those lamb loins, so I had lamb kidneys. I would occasionally have sauteed kidneys. There would be, um, cold pâtés or terrines, and they have a choice of three different items. The entree came always with one of those pilafs and a fresh vegetable. There was no frozen vegetable in the house. And a couple of years after we got the restaurant started, we also started baking our own bread. So there was freshly baked bread each day. And then we opened in 72. In 74, 75, when there was that little bit of a hiccup in the economy, we uh, started a special Monday night dinner that included a wine selected for the appetizer course and another wine for the entree course. On the Monday night menu, uh, we did a dinner from a different country each week, and we would send out a monthly mailer announcing what country would be represented, the appetizer course, the main course, and the two wines selected to go with it. And these dinners, I think, started out at $7.50 for the five-course meal. Now, this is quite a few years ago. And each of the wines, we, we would pour five glasses out of a bottle. And so you could have a glass at one-fifth the bottle price. And the bottle was priced at less than it would be on the normal dinner menu. And I'll tell you, we got a following for that where people would come in and say, oh, you don't need to give us the menu, just bring us tonight's special. And, and they did it from beginning to end, a glass of each wine. So that really helped pull us out. I love to hear that you created a unique opportunity out of a, a difficult or challenging circumstance. Well, we, we really had to struggle to put it together. And so catering, I've often said, 
that if it hadn't been for catering, I don't think the restaurant would have made it. Mm. Because during that tight period, people just were not going out. And we were sort of out of the way. We were in Kensington, which is actually a little unincorporated area north of Berkeley, but they have the same zip code as Berkeley. And most people around here think it's part of Berkeley. So we we were part of the Berkeley scene. The um, Gourmet Magazine came out with an article that said Narcis and Chez Panisse in Berkeley were serving California cuisine. Well, I called Alice Waters and said, hey, you have any idea what California cuisine is? She said, I was thinking of calling you to ask you. <laughs> The, the truth is, what was what was similar is that both of us used French as the style of our cooking. I mean, the, 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 the kitchen style of cooking and presentation uh, was really French. But everything had to be fresh. And I, I would go down with my wife and friends to Half Moon Bay and scrape mussels off the rocks. Mm. Uh, in those days, you couldn't buy mussels from the local purveyor because nobody had them. And in California, they were not even controlled by fish and game, so there was no limit on them, except there were times that the health department, which had the control on mussels, for the simple reason that mussels, during certain periods of hot spell in the weather, can develop a phytoplankton that is very, very dangerous to consume. Uh, for people. And so what I would do is harvest the mussels, drop off a sample at the State Department of Public Health, which had their main office in Berkeley. And the next morning, they would give me the result of their test and confirm that they're perfectly safe to eat. And that day, they would be on our menu. Well, nowadays, they're harvested commercially year-round someplace or other in Washington or on the East Coast. But we would go to the... Um, vineyards in the Napa Valley and harvest wild mustard in the springtime to use as a garnish for salads or to to put into some of our dressings. We did things with local production and baking the breads ourselves. Everything became in-house. We opened a little market next door to the restaurant. All the pâtés were made in-house. Well, here's a story for you about lamb. Since we used so much lamb, we started selling some sausages and pâtés. And at first I thought we'd use some of the lamb trimmings because the, all those lamb racks and lamb loins produced a lot of trimmings. And the staff had, let's say, more than their fill of moussaka mm -hmm. because it was a good place to use some of those trimmings. And I thought, why can't we put some of that in the sausages? So we experimented with it. But you know, if, if you get 10% lamb into a pork sausage, it dominates the flavor of the pork because lamb is so definitive. So I said, well, wait a minute. Why don't we just make a lamb sausage as a lamb sausage? And we flavor it the same way my mother used to flavor lamb kebabs. And that's why I call that rack of lamb a Syrian rack of lamb. We marinated it with pomegranate juice, uh, onions, and garlic. Yeah. And we used the same ingredients ground up with the lamb trimmings, and suddenly lamb sausages were selling so fast, I had to buy lamb shoulder to get enough lamb meat to make the sausages for the market. Um, 
So the market developed quite a nice reputation and did very, very well. Now, food brings people together. So when you would observe when looking out at the restaurant floor and and seeing people gather and, and socialize around food, what would you observe in that in that context? I thought you hit on a really good point because too often somebody who's a really good cook opens a restaurant and stays hidden in the kitchen. Well, I know there are some chefs who who just operate at their best that way, but I feel I can teach a chef to produce my recipes. And after all, the name of the place is Narcy's. It's Narcy's and people expect it to reflect my taste. So I feel if I can teach the chef to make the food the way I want to make it, then I can be out in front and interface with the customer. And when I started the restaurant, I had a cousin named Samuel David. And of course, people always thought my name was backwards and they all always thought that he was my brother. So I was, I was David Narcy and he was Samuel Narcy, right? I mean, that's how uh, convoluted names can get. But we used to correct people when they, I said, oh no, he's my cousin. Actually, his father, Scopila, was my father's first cousin. So we were actually a little more removed. Is Scopila Assyrian? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. an Assyrian name? Okay. Yeah, Scopila. And, uh, and so Sam's name was Samuel Scopila David. He has a, a nephew of his, is the, uh, the head of the Church of the East in Australia, Marmilis, oh, okay. is, is the son of Sam's sister. Okay. <clears throat> who grew up in San Jose. And, and so uh, we used to correct people, say, no, no, he's my cousin. We want to keep it straight. Well, one day a customer came in and said, gee, I'm sorry we missed you the last time we were here, but your brother took really good care of us. So from that day on, we called him my brother. And then my, my brother, Jim, my youngest brother said, hey, wait a minute. If he's your brother and you have three of you, um, well, what does that leave me? <laughs> kind of a, a gag. But we did very nicely until he had a, um, a change in mind about where he was going with his life, and he moved to Marbella in Spain. That didn't last very long. It only lasted a couple of years, I think. But time moves on, and I hired a young woman who had been my assistant catering manager and brought her in as the maitre d' manager. And by golly, it wasn't one of the Narsi brothers greeting the guests anymore. And so I had Vini, my wife, bring our son, young teenager, for dinner at least three times a week. And we would sit down at 6.30. That's kind of late at night for a teenager uh, in school to get started eating a meal. But we'd set a table right in the middle of the dining room so I could see people on all sides. And before sitting down, I would make the rounds and after we finished dinner and Venus and Danny left, then again, I would drift around the dining room for another half hour or an hour and then slip out the back door. Well, after a couple of years of that, I said, you know, this is no way to live. Either I give up all the other things I'm doing and go back to being a maitre d' six nights a week, 
or I close the restaurant. It was really a tough decision, I have to tell you. As a Syrian, <clears throat> we like to think of ourselves as hospitable. What values from your upbringing and, and heritage were present in the restaurants you managed and then, of course, in your in your own Narcisse? Hospitality is, is the very the root, the very core. Of what I, I, I spoke early on of how much I, I love people and food and good wine and how I love to make people happy. Hospitality is critical. You walk into an Assyrian home and there's immediately something to eat. My mother always had one of those glass, sort of like a carved glass bowl with a lid on it that had walnuts and raisins in it. And uh, I used to call eating those things a crime because you can never stop eating. <laughs> well, your mouth is a little too sweet. You had a little more nut. Well, now it's not sweet enough, so you take some more raisins. <laughs> just, you can't give it up once you start. No matter how recently you may have had a meal, you're urged to sit down and join us uh, if there's food around. So food is at the, at the root of hospitality in an Assyrian home. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, did you have a winery and do you still have that winery? Not a winery. We never had a winery, but we did and do still have a vineyard in the Napa Valley. This vineyard we bought in 1977, 76, 77, 17 acres in Oakville, which is a really prestigious area of the Napa Valley on the valley floor. So we were not affected by the fires, which hurt the people up in the hills. On the other hand, we did have a lot of damage from the smoke of those fires. And last year we lost the entire crop, wow. but fortunately the insurance covered it. Then we, we planted another vineyard and for years we were just selling grapes. I mean, it was, a, it was an investment that was involved in the Napa Valley and had something to do with growing grapes, but there was no thought of making wine. But then after we planted the new vineyard over on the east side of Napa Valley. I was so excited with the quality of those grapes that I thought, by golly, let's, uh, let's make some wine of our own. So interestingly enough, I found a winery owned by an Assyrian in uh, the Napa Valley, Minor Family Vineyards. Minor, as you may know, Robert Nimrod Minor was the partner of Larry Ellison when they created Oracle. Mm -hmm. And he sadly died at a very young age. But the family was left with, with quite a substantial resource and an income. And his brother, Ed Miner, opened this winery. And Robert's widow started a vineyard, not a winery. And Ed's son, David, came in to actually operate the winery. And they agreed to make a custom wine for us. So each year, we would harvest between 8 and 10 tons of grapes and take it there. So we were making something like five or 600 cases a year. We did that for 10 years. Now I know with your wine, at least one of the wine labels that I've seen has had an Issa Binyamin calligraphy on it. Right, uh, the very first vintage, we I printed those labels myself on a Heidelberg, 75 year old Heidelberg press that I have here wow. in the cottage. Because for a short time in my life, I was actually a printer as well. We, didn't bother getting into that. And Issa Binyamin did my mother's name 
with this beautiful calligraphy, you know, this, this, I don't know what to call it. It's just a, a sort of artistic version of calligraphy in which the letters are stacked up to create a, a symbol. Her name is Shulamit. And he did this Shulamit thing for me. And I put that on the label and the uh, first four vintages had that on the label. But I'll tell you, it created such a problem in selling the wine because anybody other than a Syrian and even some Assyrians at a glance thought it looked like one of those Arabic mm. uh, glyphs. Um, it was a little confusing to people. The name Narsi, which is in itself unusual, and then this symbol, which could be from some foreign country. What is that stuff anyway? So after the four vintages, we changed the name to Narsi David Estates. And then on the on the selection of the actual wine, it says Venus David Reserve or Venus Selection, rather. Venus David Selection. Uh, so then we put a little note on the back label with a miniature version of that glyph describing my mother's history. As a result of selling your vineyards, are there no longer Narsi David wines that are sold in the market? No, we do. Uh, we because we had we went back to minor family, and in order to just keep the label alive, mm -hmm. uh, they sold me a few barrels each year mm -hmm. of wine they had made. I got to select the barrels I wanted, so it represented my feeling on the wine, and we continued bottling it. And now we're we're thinking of of starting up making wine of our own from scratch. Wonderful. Again. Now the ones that the minor family has made, are any of those wines available in the market for people to purchase? No, it's so limited that, that what, what we made just sort of flies out. Have you come across any other wineries or wine growers that are Assyrian? No, I haven't. I no, the basic answer is no. I there's a place when we go up to um, up to the ocean on the Mendocino coast, there's a sign I pass along the way. It looks like a little cottage and it's uh, named Nineveh. And I oh. keep thinking of knocking on the door and asking. <laughs> if, uh, but I, I don't know of any other Assyrian winery as such. A couple of years ago, I learned that a 15 liter bottle of wine is known as a Nebuchadnezzar, which I thought was pretty cool. I didn't yeah, know well, that. The, uh, when they named those bottles, uh, they got a lot of these ancient names. A Magnum is uh, one and a half liters and a double Magnum in Bordeaux is called a double Magnum, but in Burgundy, it's called a Jeroboam. Then a six liter bottle is called a Rehoboam. And then there's the Balthazar, another name from ancient history. And the Nebuchadnezzar for a long time was the largest one. But then somebody came along and christened a ship with a something like a 25 liter humongous bottle <laughs> that got name the same name as that ship i don't remember what it is now but yeah those are classic names being well known and versed in the food and wine industry you uh, later became a radio personality you were often on the radio how often were you on the radio and what did your experience with broadcasting teach you well when uh, when it started 
uh, was in 1983, there was a program on KCBS radio called the, uh, the KCBS Kitchen. And it was one hour every morning at 10 o'clock, uh, this guy named Harvey Steinman, who since has become a, um, an editor for Wine Spectator magazine. And for one hour, he would talk about wine and food with, with the regular host. And if he had to be out of town or for some reason couldn't make it, he asked me to stand in for him. Well, I got kind of a kick out of that because you're asked questions that really put you on the spot. How do I solve this problem or do that problem? What if I did this and how? To... And it was a challenge and it was appealing. So on, on the basis of that, uh, in 1984, I started doing a Saturday version of the show that was two hours long called the KCBS Saturday Kitchen. And in, for two hours, people could call in. Sometimes I would have guests. Sometimes I just did it alone. And then I started a project where we would taste the wine on television. And the week in advance, I would announce the name of the wine that we were going to taste. And it was always a moderate priced wine, something readily available that people could go out and buy. So people could buy the wine. And on the following Saturday, they could open it and taste it at home. Well, we're, I mean, nowadays it'd be sort of like a Zoom production almost, except <laughs> the one-way Zoom, not a two-way. And it's radio, not television. But it was really a kick because you could share ideas with people and, and have them tasting it at the same time. Then I closed the restaurant in 1985 and wanted to elaborate on the radio. So they agreed to give me a one-hour slot Monday through Friday from 7 to 8 in the evening. And it was dubbed Narcy and Company. And so it was the first time there was a, a food and wine show on a regular basis in the evening hours. And that proved to be quite successful. In 1990, five years later, the hot shots from New York came out and said that the the ABC station in San Francisco, KGO, was primarily talk with a lot of news. And KCBS, the CBS station, was primarily news with a lot of talk. And we had to differentiate ourselves. So overnight, we became an all-news station. Mm. With an all-news station, you couldn't have a guy doing a Narcy and Company program. So they wanted to keep me and the food and wine aspect alive. So we agreed to a, um, my preparing 13 small features, they're under two minutes each per week. And they would run two a day, except one on Sunday. And each of those 13 would play three times. So there were 39 exposures a week. And it's really fascinating because for more than I'd have to check the dates, how many years, more than more than 10, I don't know if it was 20 years. I was actually heard every single day of the year, 365 days a year. Wow. Which is kind of an unusual bit of history. How many listeners would the, um, the channel get on average? Oh gosh, those are numbers I just never bothered with. It's radio, it was, uh, KCBS has been the lead radio station in San Francisco for many, many years, both their 
AM, both AM and FM, mm -hmm. and and still continues. But as things have cut back, as everything else has, I mean, the reality is that these online things are just really, really taking a chunk out of both radio and television, mm -hmm. uh, as you know. So I'm down now to sort of a semi-retired position where I just do one feature a week. It runs on Saturday, uh, three times every Saturday. But you're still on radio. That's that's wonderful. Yeah. And there were other things along the way. I did some television. I did some local television while I had the restaurant. In fact, a woman friend who was very involved in public relations and marketing introduced me to um, somebody at KGO Radio, that's once again that ABC affiliate, a guy named Owen Spann who had a morning talk show. And I would appear every couple of weeks and spend an hour chattering with him. And I'm remembering the music for KGO, riding in my dad's car, KGO News Talk 810. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. You got it. Uh, and, um, and then I did a little television on Channel 2 station in Oakland, KTVU, and that was a, a cooking demonstration that I did on live morning television. And then I met the producer of the Catherine Crosby show, which was on KPIX, the CBS television station. And for several years, I was a weekly guest there. Oh, and I had to join the union at that point because I had become a regular and it, they had to pay me $29 per appearance. Well, it was really hilarious because by then the restaurant was rolling and I'd be describing something that was part of an upcoming dinner. And before I got off the air, the phone at the restaurant was ringing for people making reservations. So I said, these guys are paying me $29 to be here. I'd pay them $129 to be here. For an advertisement, yeah. Uh, and that led to a show called Over Easy, which was on PBS nationally, that lasted for, I believe, six years. It was a show that dealt with aging in America, and they had gotten Hugh Downs to come out of retirement to host the show. And after three years, of the success of the show, he was really feeling his oats again. And he flew to New York and started the 2020 news program. And so for one year, he was commuting between San Francisco and New York, hosting 2020, but filming the um, introductions for the uh, Over Easy. And each week, I would cook a segment. And one of the one of the guests each week they had some of the old time entertainment people coming on and and i would cook something using one of those guests as my helper in the kitchen so to speak it was really a lot of fun and that was doing very very well until um we uh we got rid of of our good governor when he became president and went to washington and that pretty much gutted public broadcasting and they no longer had the funds to keep that one on the air. Sad day in politics that way things get switched around. So yeah, I've had a lot of fun with both radio and television. 
Now let's transition a little bit into your Assyrian work. Something I find unique about you is that you were born in the U.S. at a time when multiculturalism really wasn't celebrated. And so as a result, uh, many in your generation ended up almost completely assimilating, but you did not. So what was different about your upbringing? Well, I think it's, it's more due to my father and mother than anything else. My father, particularly so, with being from the little tribal village of Marbishu up in the hills where church was such an important part of their life. My mother was actually in the Presbyterian church and mm. Ada, the Presbyterian missions had gotten really well established, but you go up into the mountain villages and it was just the church of the East and nothing else. Well, no, there was the Jacobite church, which now is known as the Syriac Orthodox church. But with my father's interest in the church and particularly my great uncle, Shamshara Hana, wow, I mean, and Zira, from his mother's conception, I mean, he could have easily would have, under normal conditions, been at least a bishop, if not a metropolitan in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, he was such a power. So all of that is in the bloodstream, and I was the firstborn. So my father uh, not only made sure that all of us talked Assyrian at home, but he made sure I learned how to read and write the Assyrian, and I would go. he would take me to church with him on the high holy days. So all of that really became part of my life. And and then helping Assyrians as as we I mean there's so many nonprofit things that I've been involved with. Back in my twenties I was president of the Arts and Crafts Co-op in Berkeley, which has grown into a just a magnificent organization. In fact, under my presidency we moved from a rented space inside the co-op grocery store into our own building. We actually bought a building and that's, you know, half a century ago and it's still going strong and serving the artists and craftspeople in the area. In um, 1968, the little theater got started in uh, South Berkeley, not far from our house called The Theater. And they were producing wonderful works I ran into a lot of financial difficulty and we're, we're having trouble staying alive. And in 1972, a small group of, of Berkeleyans got together and created a board uh, named the Berkeley Repertory Theater. And we raised enough money to pay off the debts of the theater and then enough money to build a new theater. The original theater was just 90 seats and the new theater had 300 seats. And so I was on that founding board and I served as president for three years. I was a member of the board for, the numbers get a little fuzzy, 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. When I retired from the board, they did a roast of me at the Claremont Hotel as a fundraiser. And I got Paul Prudhomme, the famous chef from New Orleans to fly in and do a course. And Wolfgang Puck, these equally famous chef, if not more so, from Los Angeles. Uh, locally, Jeremiah Tower and Joyce Goldstein are names that people recognize. And it was done at the Claremont Hotel in Berkeley, which was the largest venue we had in the East Bay in those days. And the chef there was Hans Wiegand, who happens to be married to a cousin of mine on my mother's side. 
and it was a great success. We raised a lot of money and that led to doing an ongoing series of dinners. So in the Assyrian Aid Society, which I got involved with, once we got to the point of doing fundraisers, I incorporated that same idea and we called it Narcy's Taste of the Mediterranean. And each year there would be a dinner. We tried a couple of different locations for it, but settled on the Ritz-Carlton as, as the ideal place, as the best place to do these dinners in San Francisco. And those have always produced sizable income. Uh, but the Assyrian Aid Society started in uh, 1991 by Lincoln Malik in, uh, in Berkeley. And in 1992, I agreed to become the president. In 2000, I went to Iraq uh, for a visit and Asher Yosef was my vice president. The two of us went together. And I want you to know, we paid our entire expenses ourselves because what the money we raised from Assyrian aid went to Assyrian aid. There were always questions in some of the Assyrian organizations about how monies were spent or where they were spent. And I'm proud to say that our books were audited and everything was very, very clear and very clean. And that trip was so meaningful to me. I mean, we were sitting in an eighth grade history class or a math class, listening to these kids getting their entire education in Assyrian. I mean, we, the Assyrian Aid Society Iraq built these schools from scratch. They took the entire legal Arabic curriculum, translated it into Assyrian, and paid for the cost of printing those books. And it, it, was, it was comical in retrospect, but if you were to ask people about this guy, Narsi David, that came to visit, I'm sure they would say, oh yeah, I was just so undone by sitting there listening to these kids speak such impeccable Assyrian using words that I didn't even begin to understand that were far too complex for me. Uh, and I just, I had tears in my eyes all the time. Uh, he was the guy that was always crying. And from what I understand from some notes that I've taken from others, you had visited st still when this was a, a no-fly zone, right? In Iraq? Yes. What we did was fly into Damascus in Syria, and we spent all night driving through the desert to get to Kamishli way up in the northeast corner, in the northeast of Syria, yeah. is Kamishli, and took a boat across the river to uh, Iraq. And I was like a, like a kid in a swimming pool, practically. I was splashing water on my face as, wow, this is, this is almost like holy water. <laughs> this is, you know, it's, uh, it's such, it's such an emotional experience. It was just really incredible. And is it true that you have also a, a soccer tournament that's named the Narcissus? They, they named a soccer tournament for me, and I could even show you. They sent me a couple of years ago, they sent me a soccer ball in a little framed box. The The plaque reads, Narsi David Soccer Tournament, Nuhadra, Iraq, 67-62, which would be 2012. Mm -hmm. And then there are signatures of some of the players and, and a few other little scripts written right on the ball itself. And it, it sits on that shelf 
at all times. It's just I love it. Now, with your efforts with the Syrian AIDS Society, especially with Narcy's Taste of Mediterranean, that event in particular has really elevated. It's it's an elevated and elegant experience, unlike any other, and really probably one of the most sophisticated experiences that I've been to that has been uh, uh, ran by an Assyrian. During your time with the Syrian AIDS Society, approximately how much have, have you helped with fundraising and providing aid to uh, Assyrians back home? Oh, well, the the Taste of the Med dinner over the years has raised almost $2 million. That's incredible. And uh, there's also the, the Lifeline Pledge that was started by our then Vice President, Asher Yosef, in which people pledge, sort of like you do for your local public television station or public radio station where you pledge a certain amount of money every month. And it, this works the same way. And that, that generates money very, very handily as well. People can pledge $10 a month or $500 a month. And it's just, it's automatic. It's like subscribing to a magazine and it just becomes part of, of people's lives. Now, I mean, to this day, you're you're actively involved in, in many nonprofits and, and foundations, including Assyrian ones, and many many burn out at this age. What has helped you stay the course? Well, first of all, I'm not as actively involved as I was. I, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show, that um, I'm I'm about to turn 85, so I'm I'm no longer on any active boards. Okay. Um, I'm the chairman emeritus of the Assyrian Aid Society. I'm chairman emeritus of the Pacific Coast Farmers Market Association. I, um, at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, I still am involved with, with designing and putting together the dinners. Of course, these last two years, there haven't been any dinners <clears throat> because of the pandemic. But for at the Berkeley Rep, for instance, aside from helping out in organizing the event. My wife and I donate a dinner for 12 people here at our home with rare wines from our personal collection. I include wine from three centuries. And at the last dinner, because there was none last year and there won't be one this year, it'll just be virtual again. But at the previous one, we had two buyers that we're willing to pay $25,000 each. And so we agreed to do two of them. Mm. So that means the theater took home $50,000 that night. And I still haven't delivered those dinners because they were going to pick up those dinners in spring of last year. But that was the third, no, that was the fourth year that we had done that kind of thing. And the number had been going up each year. It started out at 10,000, it was 15, it was 20, it was up to 25,000. and Somewhere along the way, we said, well, gee whiz, if, if there are that many people that want to spend that kind of money, well, <laughs> the theater would love to have it. And we, uh, for the Assyrian aid dinners, we donate wine for the dinner. We donate wine for an auction. Some of those jumbo bottles, the six-liter bottles, have been sold at those dinners. Now, you got married at some point, and from the Stanford lecture that I've watched, I understand your wife is Bulgarian? Yes. Uh-huh. How did the two of you meet? Interestingly enough, that all goes back to the potluck restaurant. I was uh, running the potluck restaurant, and she walked in one night for dinner with two other women. One was her roommate, 
And the third one was visiting here from uh, the Midwest, but they had all been in school together at uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison. And it was, it's one of these corny sounding things. She walked in the door and my eyes connected with her. And pretty soon my staff was joking about it because I was behaving like I never had before. Um, and I was spending a lot of time at their table chatting. And then I offered them an after dinner drink when they had finished their meal and they happily accepted. And boy, was I wowed that Vini requested a uh, Martel Cordon Bleu, which was the fanciest cognac we had in a joint uh, at the time. And, uh, and then they invited me to sit down with them. And uh, then Vini was planning a birthday party for her roommate. And I offered to lend her a case of wine glasses to use for the tasting and help her choose some wines and so forth. And it didn't take very long after that. And we connected and married and have a child. And it's just, uh, it, it, it sounds almost corny, like it's too simple or too, uh, but, but these things really do happen. I love it. How does your Assyrian heritage show up in your home and with the upbringing of your children? Because Unfortunately, unfortunately not, not much, because if both of us were of the same background, there'd be a common language. But since we're not speaking Assyrian mm-hmm. with each other, our son just has, you know, a, a few, a trickle of a few words, but he has lots of Assyrian cousins and, and close enough friends that he understands the, the heritage, but he's not, but he's not, he, he doesn't speak any Assyrian. Mm-hmm. The last question that we always like to leave the guests with to answer is um, we, we sort of give the mic to you if there's um, anything that you'd like to say as a last piece to those who are listening. Well, I, uh, I love my Assyrian heritage, and I just wish that people of means would help support the people who are left behind. My, my great uncle, Rahana, was, was saving lives by sending money. That was at, at a pretty critical time. In my mind, I don't think there's any chance of there being another Assyria. I think those days are gone. History has moved pretty fast up until now. Now it's moving at an even greater speed. And and it's too late to talk about that, but it's not too late to save the language. It's not too late to help those in need who are there and are suffering. But it's going to take an active commitment on the part of a lot of people to do that. And with countries all over the world struggling to make ends meet, it's, you know, it's not like you could send some money and say, here, we'll bring that family to the United States. You can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But there are sizable Assyrian settlements in Sweden now and in Germany, and of course, enormous settlement in Australia. But there are a lot of people with our ancestry that are in, in trouble and need help. And I would just implore people to not forget their Assyrian ancestry. If they don't want to be involved in joining a club or, or attending meetings somewhere, that's, that's fine. That, those aren't for everybody. But by golly, you can send $10 or $20 or $100 
a month on the Lifeline Pledge, you could attend some of the functions that are put on. Outsiders as well, but it's getting something involved within the community. Mm-hmm. And and that's that would be my my hope for the future. Thank you very much, Narcy. I really appreciate your time on the podcast. Adessa, thank you. Nice to be with you. That's it for this week. I know, amazing, right? Don't forget to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us. And if you love this episode, please share it with three other people. Thanks and see you next Tuesday.